Good evening, everyone, and welcome. Uh, in addition to being a signatory uh, in a personal capacity to the Tomorrow's Capital Markets report being launched here this evening, I am director of St. Paul's Institute, and I'm going to moderate this evening's proceedings. Now, if you didn't get one of these, this is our new echo way to hand out reports. They were on the desk, and the text of the report is actually on the USB stick. Um, so you may have it, some of you may also receive it electronically, but this is, this is the useful takeaway for the night, to read the whole report. Now, I'd like to tell you very briefly how the evening is going to proceed. I'm going to give you a very brief introduction to the topic and the speakers. Mark Goiter, Chief Executive of Tomorrow's Company, will introduce other key players who are in the report, who are in the room this evening, and then present the core messages. Following Mark, Leon, Executive Director of Hermes Equity Ownership Services, and also a signatory of the report, will speak to the investment chain. And that, the three of us effectively comprise the insiders on this panel. So all of us were engaged in some ways in the formulation and the research. We will then ask the Reverend Hugh Thomas, who has seen the capital markets both from the inside as a compliance lawyer within a bank and the outside as a city clergyman to combat is what is often called a critical friend in the jargon, particularly on the human element of the report and what behaviors are necessary for these changes to occur and how likely or easy it might be to make them happen, particularly regarding incentives. Uh, you have the biographies for all the speakers, so I'm not going to go on at any length. Um, but I am only going to say that we're delighted that everybody could be here this evening, both the people on the panel and all of you in the audience. Now, if I do my job as moderator well, we should be done with these remarks in about 35 minutes so that we will have a significant amount of time for questions and discussions from the floor, including comments from other signatories in the audience. Um, and then, before concluding by 8 p.m., I'll give each of the speakers a last word and also invite you all to stay for a drink to continue to the discussion. St. Paul's Institute is delighted to co-sponsor this event, not just because I've been personally involved, but also because the Institute thinks a lot about both the common good and stewardship. In particular, we think a lot about the social purpose of business and how business, financial and otherwise, is expected to serve the population and not the other way around. We actively listen and showcase a wide range of thinking on this topic across the political and economic spectrum. As a demonstration of that, and also as a short commercial, if I may be permitted, next Tuesday, uh, the 3rd of November, at this time, we will be hosting Paul Mason, who some of you will know as the economics correspondent on television, uh, in the cathedral for a debate on his new book called Post-Capitalism. So we try and cover a wide range of topics within the financial sphere. Now, ever since the financial crisis, and well before then in the case of tomorrow's company, there have been efforts to rethink our economic and business models in constructive ways. Soon after the crisis in 2010, Tomorrow's company began to think about how to shift incentives in the capital markets to encourage outcomes that were perceived to be better in the long term and particularly in the intergenerational interests of society. And they took into account the stewardship of the world's assets. 
It began, if I may say, as a bit of a plaint, but has turned into a bit of a progress report as we began to discover how much good work was already underway, but also what a ginormous task we had undertaken. Having been a party to the process, I can assure you it was sometimes a relatively torturous one. But I think explaining some of the difficulties of the scope might help you in the audience better understand the outcome when you open your USB stick. In the report, we refer to the capital markets as a hydra, a many-headed beast. There are so many different actors with so many different interests and incentives that it is hardly surprising that most people call them all bankers or sometimes something rather worse that rhymes. <laughs> Whether they are asset managers, traders, credit rating agencies, institutional investors, market makers, clearers, mergers and acquisitions specialists, equity analysts or salesmen, debt market salesmen or origination folk, there's all of those professions or sub-professions within what we're talking about as capital markets. What they have in common is that all of them, in some way or another, are in what I, we came to call the chain of intermediation. And that chain of intermediation is taking your money and mine as the ultimate saver and moving it on through all these people to find a home for it where it can be usefully productive so that you get a return and something useful gets done with it. But the chain has become so long that many people forget there's a human being at the beginning. And they forget that that money represents someone's savings, someone's retirement, or someone's children's education. One of our jobs is to put that back in the front of people's minds. The myriad pieces to the puzzle and the myriad dimensions, but particularly the interactions from and in various directions, meant that there was rarely a clear solution that did not have unintended consequences for another part of the financial markets. It was difficult to find the right points of intervention and specific actionable recommendations that did not start a whole further chain of events, not all of them desirable. Simply put, with all the best will in the world, we took on a project that became both larger and more difficult than originally conceived. I think that's fair to say, don't you, Mark? <laughs> um, and almost by definition, the outcome will be partial. And there are many places where it will be relatively easy to find flaws with the work because of that. However, I think it should be looked at differently than that. I think it should be looked at as another step along the way in a movement that is gathering momentum. A movement that seeks not only to define what needs to change, but also to begin to find solutions. Examples already exist in social investment funds, the B Corporation movement that's come to the UK from the US, integrated reporting, and think tanks looking at new efforts in finance and economics. Only this week in The Economist, hardly a radical magazine, in their briefing on American capitalism, the issues of dilution and loss of, loss of control that came with the democratization of shareholders, as well as the peril of quarterly capitalism, were both addressed. 
This special report looked at new models of ownership, models that have become much more direct again, particularly since a lot of tech startups don't need the kind of financial resources that meant the equity and debt capital markets were so necessary that required a public listing and a public launch to raise the funds to build the steel mill or drill the oil well or build the paper mill because today's companies don't need that same kind of capital. This article made me think that if we were guilty of anything as signatories to this report, it was perhaps in not being quite radical enough. However, to the credit of tomorrow's company, the advantage of what might be called incrementalism is that it's actionable. When reviewed in conjunction with other efforts, there are clear signs of progress. Nonetheless, for those of you who have been to Institute events before, you will not be surprised to hear that in the discussion, I'm going to challenge each one of you to come up with one actionable thing that you will do leaving this meeting to make a difference to change the current capital market system into something that's working better than it does today. Now, having set the scene, I will hand over to Mark. Thank you, Barbara. I have a lot of thank yous. Uh, let me start by thanking you and the St. Paul's Institute for uh, partnering us uh, tonight in this discussion, and thanking you, Barbara, for your part in the, the whole project. Um, and thanking Robert Gordon, Yolanda, and all the people who've been responsible for getting us together here tonight. I'd like to thank our sponsors, especially Generation Investment Management and the Generation Foundation, Russell Investments and Alliance Trust. I'd like to thank our inquiry teams, some of whom are here tonight. Damien Connell, Mike Clark, not here, I think. Donald Fleming, who's here tonight. Um, Ingrid is here somewhere, I think I saw her, yes. Ingrid Holmes of E3G. Tim Wright of PwC. Um, and you, Barbara. And I'd like to acknowledge the team that produced the report, because that certainly wasn't me, um, and, uh, and were signatories. Uh, I'd particularly like to, to um, draw attention to um, other signatories here. I think Kayori Shagir is here. This has come in, yes. Um, Pradeep Jetty, I think, is here. Um, yes. And uh, I, I, I was expecting um, Galina uh, Dimitrova, but I'm not sure. If, is it, are you here, Galina? No. But I'd like to thank all of those, those signatories. Um, most importantly, I'd like to acknowledge the contribution of Pat Cleverly, our Director of Research, Strategy and Policy, who has been the most extraordinary ringmaster through many difficulties that I won't even begin to catalogue. Um, and Aneta Dietkova, uh, who's here today as well, who was our senior researcher on the project. Um, and both of them did a, a fantastic job, a very professional job, an intellectually very demanding job, uh, a job of, of, of herding sheep at some time. Uh, sorry, herding cats. Herding sheep is easy by comparison. Um, and and um, when I get that difficult question about the complexities of, the, of MIFID, or brokers' commissions, which I'm completely unable to answer. I'm still looking to you, Pat and Anetta, to help me out. Um, 
So that's a long list of thank yous, and that's typical of a Tomorrow's Company report because what we do is we try to work together with practical people who have a real concern to make systems work better and are near enough to the sharp end to be able to, to, to have an influence. We've been around for 20 years. Uh, we exist to inspire and enable companies to be a force for good. Um, and for us, Tomorrow's Capital Markets represents an advance in the sense that um, it's something we really want to follow up because for a long time Tomorrow's Company has talked about our vision of the better company of the future. And indeed, Laurie Fitzjohn, who's in the audience, is working on our futures project, which is uh, looking back at, for 20 years and looking forward in terms of what uh, the Tomorrow's Company now looks like. But the enabling conditions which capital markets provide are so crucial uh, to what we hope to achieve. I was always taught that uh, good reports didn't uh, need to be read in full. You just have to read the executive summary. And I was further taught by, by one particular colleague I used to work with back at the, in my days at the RSA that better still, what you need to do is forget about the executive summary, just have a really good title. And I think that this title is a really good title. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk in four parts about the challenges of tomorrow, capital markets and their role, investing in what we value. So I want to talk in those four parts. Um, first of all, tomorrow, I, I don't have to labour with this audience the, the issues. Um, by 2050, 9.1 billion population, um, more 60-year-olds in the world than people under 15. The pressure on natural resources, we're already using one and a half planets, it'll be two by the time we get to 2030. By 2050, somewhere between two and three. Um, food, the report catalogues, $83 billion a year investment in agriculture in, and food in emerging economies just to keep up with the growing demands of population, not actually to improve nutrition standards, not actually to be better at feeding the hungry with our population, just to stay where we are. All of that investment needs to come from capital markets. Water, more than a billion people still lacking access to fresh water, two billion still lacking access to proper sanitation. Uh, as, as we catalogue, uh, as Philip Sadler, I think, pointed out to us, Sao Paulo, um, completely running out of water at the beginning of this year uh, with effects that are thought to have a serious um, uh, damaging effect on GDP. Carbon and energy, Ingrid Holmes who's in the room is campaigning, championing the case with uh, the EU. We need to double our investment uh, in terms of low carbon economy and, and new technologies and all the shifts that are necessary. And yet at the moment the European um, uh, Capital Markets Union thinking doesn't seem to have factored that in uh, sufficiently uh, to what we need to do. And technology. I mean, no time here to catalogue all the, the changes in technology of tomorrow, except to say that actually if we have technology that is so smart, sometimes for evil purposes, as Dido Harding will testify, and sometimes for good purposes. If we have technology that's so part smart, doesn't that have something to say for what we want to do in terms of what Barbara was talking about, in terms of humanising our capital markets? So that's the challenges of tomorrow. What about capital markets? As Barbara said, directly or indirectly, the capital in our capital markets comes from the savings of people like us, 
So it's logical for us as human beings to want to see that capital used and mobilised to tackle the huge problems of tomorrow that we've just talked about. And as Barbara said, we talk about this ugly beast, the capital market, but a beast that we believe to be adaptive. There is hope. The beast isn't completely out of control. Uh, by our actions, we can steer it. Um, it's just we need to create the right boundaries, the right rules, the right standards of behaviour. And as Damien Connell reminds us, Connell reminds us in his uh, think piece in the report, provided we don't imagine we can do it all through financial incentives. And indeed, there are many perverse financial incentives running through the system. We've been doing some work on long-term incentive uh, plans uh, in our corporate governance forum and coming to the conclusion uh, with many finance directors who years ago would have expected to be in favour of them that they are impossibly perverse incentives because actually uh, uh, defining what performance looks like is, is, is unachievable. It just becomes something else uh, to manipulate. So that's the thing about markets, capital markets, good servants, bad masters. And of course, too many economists have taught us things that we're having to unlearn, that markets are perfect, uh, that economic behavior can simply be explained in terms of people's desire to make money, that shareholders and stakeholders are different people in different compartments, as opposed to the idea that actually they're different aspects of the same person. And, and I'm very interested in a piece of work that is going to be published soon by the New Citizenship Project, which makes the point that in our economic and social life, we've increasingly talked about ourselves as consumers, consumers of education, consumers of health. We haven't empowered ourselves as citizens, thinking about the total systemic effects if we're all squeezing the system for what we can get out of it as a consumer. So... Uh, in the very week um, when, um, instead of talking about VW, I could talk about that other German car manufacturer, Mercedes. Uh, their, their man has just won the world um, Formula One uh, title, and they've, of course, long since won the manufacturer's title. I'd actually like to suggest that capital markets may be a little bit comparable with racing car engines. They will only perform at their best when they're highly tuned, set up right, and if I can continue the analogy, their effectiveness depends very much on the balancing of the wheels and the steering. If our investments are to be well looked after, we need to ensure that the original message that is sent from the client, from the steering wheel, is actually not lost in a confusion of poorly aligned suspension and conflicted and misaligned wheels. And encouragingly, this report points to many examples where the steering does self-correct, and Mike Clark, who's not here tonight, gives interesting examples of self-organisation in the system. And I'm proud to say that one of those examples, the new National Association of Pension Fund uh, stewardship framework, is something that tomorrow's company, uh, through our stewardship work, has, has played a part in. So actually, civil society and, and, and the investment trade, trade associations and so on, the professional associations, they are involved in an element of, of self-correction. So much for capital markets and the fact that they're servants. What about investing? Leon is going to talk, I hope, about um, investing being something that takes place in the context of a whole chain. And it was something that was mentioned by Barbara. If we want to get the right results, we certainly have to understand what that chain is. But there's another, there's another assumption that people often make, that capital markets are simply about investment. 
They're not. They're also about trading. And one of the things in this report is the balance between trading and investment. How do we keep the casino economy in check? Of course trading is part of the necessary uh, uh, functioning. Liquidity is part of the necessary functioning of the capital markets. But how do we keep that balance right? In this report, we're saying that we need a number of realignments if we're to get that right, if we're not to end up with the real economy of wealth creation um, over, uh, uh, being overwhelmed by the casino economy. And so, for example, we talk about some fund managers who talk as if and get business from people as if they're handling long-term mandates. And actually what they're doing is short-term trading. That's one realignment we need. Then there's high-frequency trading, where there may be mechanisms like delays and, and, and other remedies which ensure that a few players don't get to rig the casino and get an unfair advantage. And in the appendix of the report, on page 34, we offer three very good practice examples of better alignment fund managers who are actually saying you only get to pay us after you've had good results and in some cases and we reserve some of the gains we've made for the for the lean years when otherwise you'd have nothing on page 30 of the report George Latham of web asset management who's here tonight um, makes the case for a focus on climate change risk that doesn't simply screen out the undesirable carbon heavy investment but supports investment in a new economy where better solutions are developed. And Donald Fleming, who's here tonight, uh, talks of a new alignment in the report between the corporate pension fund and the sponsoring company, rather than the old, rather conflicted model where they're assumed to have opposite interests. So we, you can see through many of the issues coming out of the reports, this issue of how can we align investing in a way uh, that produces the results that we want. Which brings us finally to the issue of investing in what we value. There was a story in yesterday's Financial Times that I thought brought out what, some of the issues quite interestingly. I don't know if you read it, but uh, Vanessa Holder was writing as follows. She said, investors are piling pressure on companies to lower their tax rates, despite the growing assertiveness of tax authorities and heightened reputational risks. Some investors were focused on transparency, reputation, and the stability of the tax rate. But for many, it was simply a case of minimizing costs and maximizing returns. Now, the question that leaves me with is, did I give the institutional investors who are handling my pension and my savings a mandate which said, my definition of value is that you go out and tell companies in all circumstances to minimize the contribution they make to society through their tax contribution. That, to me, is, is an example of the mandate not being clear enough, investors making an assumption about what we, their clients and beneficiaries, ultimately want. Again, it's back to the issue of, are we consumers of financial services or are we also thinking as citizens? I think we all believe, and tomorrow's company produced a report on this called Tomorrow's Value, I think we all believe that for too long we've been told that we can, pension trustees and other decision makers cannot make decisions that reflect their ethical principles and if they stand in the way of, of short-term financial returns. I've always had found that dogma hard to understand. It assumes that we know 
what are the right methods in the short term to achieve financial returns. Probably the kind of methods that were causing investors to pile into Marconi shares about 15 years ago, just at the time when perhaps they should have been piling out of them. But the legal position is becoming clearer. The Law Commission has made it clear uh, that it is permissible for pension trustees to use their judgment to factor in much more long-term considerations of risks. So, in conclusion, Barbara, I was very inspired looking at the St Paul's Institute website um, by a homily that you gave on the subject of the harvest uh, a few months ago. And it made me think that years ago it was so much simpler. You could just talk about economic activity in terms of sowing, growing, reaping, threshing, winnowing, storing. That's it. Tomorrow's, tomorrow's harvest would have been a much easier report to produce. What are we talking about? Saving, investing, stewarding assets, providing investment advice, managing funds, dealing with conflicts, starting, growing, financing and floating businesses, putting in place the right boards, creating the right cultures and the right measurements and the right incentives, appointing the right leaders, stewarding those companies for today and tomorrow, ensuring they're properly accountable. It is a very complicated system that we're trying to get a more simple human influence over. And somehow, it seems to me, the importance of this report, the importance of the work that we want to do in following it up, is how can we bring to bear that golden thread of stewardship that working through all of those complexities ultimately ensures that the seeds that we sow in the economy of tomorrow are giving us the options that enable us to shape this harvest of the, of, of the future, meeting the needs of the generations of the future that we described at the, heart, at the start. Capital markets exist to serve wealth creation and societal health. So I urge us all to take every step we can to ensure that they're attuned to that purpose. Thank you very much. Thank you, Barbara. Um, and thank you to Plack Heavily and her team for producing a really, really good report. And, and um, it's already been mentioned how long it took. Um, Anita there as well worked really, really hard on it. I think three or four years in, in its making. Um, so you should feel really good about the report and, and, uh, and hopefully it will be used as a foundation for, for us taking the capital markets forwards. Before I start my remarks, um, I thought you might, it might be useful just to give you a couple of minutes on, on the company I come from, so you can then see from which angle I'll be, I'll be, I'll be um, addressing, addressing this issue. So I work with Hermes Investment Management, and Hermes Investment Management is simply a mainstream fund manager in a number of different asset classes. A couple of things which might make us a bit different is that we're owned by BT Pension Scheme, which is, I think, the second largest uh, fund here in the UK. And so we're ultimately owned by 320,000 beneficiaries who earn, on average, £10,000 a year in their pension. So that's an important point in terms of where we're coming from. The second thing is we're known for responsible investing, thanks to Alistair Ross Gooby way, way back when, 
Um, we've we've always had a piece on corporate, you know, corporate governance, and then it moved into ESG, environment, social governance, and and now I think we're talking about responsibility. And the way we think about it, and doing it, we are a, main, a, a group of mainstream funds, is we try and make our investment managers aware of long-term issues, not constrained by them, but just aware of them. Secondly, we engage quite strongly with companies and policymakers, and thirdly, we do a lot of advocacy work, um, such as this, with the idea of trying to improve the standards which they are in a sector or in a country, and thereby hopefully reduce the, the cost of capital. So that's just a couple of minutes on where I'll be, I'll be coming from. The first question I want to ask, and I was nervous asking this question because you might look at me and think, well, that's an obvious question. It is quite an obvious question, which is, who are we working for and what are we trying to achieve for, the, for who we're working for? So ultimately, and I think everyone would agree with this, but in our day-to-day -day jobs, we don't always think about the fact that we're working for the beneficiary, the beneficiary of pension funds, the beneficiary of a private wealth fund, the beneficiary of an insurance um, uh, policy. That's who we're working for. And what are we trying to do for that beneficiary? Well, normally when we think about it, we, we think about the fact that what we're doing is trying to, to achieve a long-term return for the beneficiary. But actually, the long-term return is not enough. If the income one's achieving, if that £10,000 doesn't pay for um, what the goods and services we need to enjoy. So, so the economy we, we, we're investing in needs to be affordable to the beneficiaries and also needs to have a, a, a life, a sustainable, sustainable life. So as investors, we don't only have a responsibility to achieve a return for our clients, we also have a responsibility to develop a sustainable, affordable economy. Now, on the investment chain, um, how do we lead up to the beneficiary? And again, if I'm, if, I'm, if I'm going through motherhood and apple pie, I do apologise. But I'd like to start with something I call the circle of accountability. So we start with the employees who are working in a, say in a, say in a company, who are producing the goods and services. They are accountable to their management. The management's accountable to the executive committee of a company. The executive committee is accountable to its board, who hopefully will have independent directors. Those independent directors of the board are accountable to the asset managers who invest in the company. The asset managers also are accountable, and they're accountable to the asset owners, their clients. And the asset owners are accountable to the beneficiaries. The beneficiaries, of course, are the employees. So you have a nice circle of everyone's accountable to someone, um, which is, 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 is quite a, a nice discipline. But going through that investment chain, we're not the only ones in the investment chain. You've got the investment banks who come into the investment chain where they're encouraging, say, M&A activity, um, trading, providing sell-side research, and uh, all the good things which investment banks provide. You've got the investment consultants who are in the chain as well, advising typically the, the, the pension funds and try, on their behalf trying to hold the asset managers to account. You've got the regulators, you've got the government, you've got the lawyers. You've got the accountants who really are working for the owners but being paid for by 
by the, by the companies. So you've got a number of different actors in this investment chain and Professor Kay in his interim review a couple of years ago laid out all, what, what all those incentives are. And the incentives and the power in the investment chain differs significantly from actor to actor. So I, I don't like to pick, up, pick on investment banks, but investment banks on the whole are pushing through transactions. M&A is a transaction. Once that M&A transaction is done, the investment bank has achieved what it's achieved. It's achieved the, the, its cut, if you like, of, of, of that transaction. Same with, with, with trading. And so we as engagers with, with banks will encourage investment banks to make sure that they're being responsible in terms of the advice which, which, which they're giving. But their incentives, and they also have quite, quite a bit of power because they've got quite a lot of influence over the companies which are making the decisions. Just thinking about the board versus the asset manager, the board has asymmetric information about the company, knows a lot about the company or should know a lot about the company. A typical asset manager will hold 70 stocks and maybe hold a half a percent, one percent of that stock. So again, very different um, power and influence and very different incentives. And so what we're trying to do, and I think what the report tries to do, is think of different ways where we can align the incentives along that chain. Now a number of you may have read in the press, or may have even been involved, um, with what happened at the Investment Association two or three weeks ago where the Chief Executive Daniel Godfrey was, was, was ousted. And I'm not going to go into it because I'm not privy to the ins and outs of, of, of why he might have been ousted, but at the time and over the last six to nine months, um, there had been issues around um, investment principles which the Investment Association put forward. And if you read those principles, there's I think ten overall. I don't think any investor would say we don't believe in these, these principles. The one which gave most consternation was putting customers first before our own interests. And I think the reason it, it gave people consternation was, well, if we put customers first, we won't be able to make a, make a profit. But only either 24 or 30, I forget, 25, thank you, um, 25 investors out of a membership of 240, um, signed up to the principles. We, we found this surprising and, um, and concerning. We're concerned that now we're sort of, as an industry, we're encouraging regulation when we could have been self-regulated. We thought about it back at Hermes and thinking, well, what can we do? How, do, how can we get our employees, we, we did sign the principles, but how can we get our employees to really come in on these principles? And so what we did, we announced last week, um, not as a holier-than-thou piece of work, we announced that we were rolling out a pledge, and um, a pledge which would go, we're encouraging, we're not forcing, encouraging employees to sign. Now that pledge en encapsulates a number of the different principles from the Investment Association, encapsulates some of the things which the FRC Code of Conduct would expect you to have. It does uh, play a little bit to our own beliefs as an investment manager. And so that's there. And why are we doing it? Our executive committee, management committee have signed the pledge, but we're going to go through with each of our employees as groups, we're going to go through some workshops where they can think about the beliefs and what it means for them. 
And we've, we've written them, and they're, as such, they're more simplistic than they might otherwise be. We've written them in a general way so that every employee can sign them. So looking forward and taking the report, there's many, many recommendations or provocations in the report, um, which I certainly encourage you to read. I just want to pick up on two, which matter uh, a lot to my, to my own heart. The first one is about empowering the asset owner, and the second one is around stewardship. So in terms of empowering the asset owner, the relationship between the asset owner and the asset manager, in some ways the asset manager is more of a consolidated industry than the asset owners, probably has more skills and, and te technical ability than maybe the average uh, group of trustees, and also are working full time, which you would not always see um, with, with tr trustees of, of asset owners. So there is already that differing influence there and, and, and also the incentives can be, can be quite, drift, quite different. So the first thing we'd like to see looking forward is for asset owners to feel that thinking about environment social governance factors, thinking about broader views of what value is, i.e. also thinking about the sustainable, affordable economy as well as the return which they might be delivering for their beneficiaries, that that should be part of their fiduciary duty. And here in the UK last year, I think it was, the Law Commission did come out and say, asset owners, you can think about environment, social governance factors as long as they're material. You can think about it over whatever time frame you feel is appropriate. And if they're not material, but they still matter to your beneficiaries, as long as they don't take away from value, you should also think about that. So we've got that fiduciary duty coming in from the Law Commission. And there is also um, a piece of work which UNEPFI and others are doing on fiduciary duty across a number of different countries, which hopefully will give more power to the asset owner to say that this is important, a part of their fiduciary duty. The other thing I think we need to think about in terms of empowering asset owners, and this has been said many times before, is how can asset owners set mandates which allow asset managers to fulfil what the objectives of, of the beneficiaries are over the long term. And I think there, again, the, the issue on transparency, so that fund managers are very clear what expenses um, are, uh, are, are, are linked to the fund and not just hide it in, in terms of some of the costs of, of, of the fund, um, what they might be. Um, what the costs of research are. But there's also about how can you set a mandate where you encourage your asset manager not only to maximise the return, but make sure that that's not at the long-term risk of, of those, of, of, of those com companies or the industries which those companies are in. And so I think there, we, if we can strengthen the mandate, we can thereby empower the asset owner. Secondly, on stewardship, and there's a lot I could say about stewardship, I won't. Um, stewardship, we can think about in terms of engaging with the investments which we have, the companies which we have, or if we directly manage real estate, how can we manage those so that they are sustainable for the long term. And then there's the advocacy side and the public policy side. We need to work more as investors. I went to a, a Chatham House Rule Investment Association meeting with a number of different investors there and one of the investment association principles was working with other investors and there was one particular person who put their hand up and said I can't do this, I, I, why can't we just do our own thing? I believe it's really important that as an industry we step up and, and together we, 
lift the standards with, within the industry. We can do so much more together. Oil and, oil and gas companies, I think 12 or so, came to those who were invested in Canadian oil sands, came together and shared technology on what the mo most carbon efficient ways of extracting oil out of the sands was. Um, if if oil, oil and gas companies can do that, surely we as an investment group can do that as well. I'm going to stop there. There's a lot more in the report and encourage you to read it. Well, um, thank you. I, I was very pleased and delighted to accept this invitation from Barbara. But the closest come to today, I have to say, the more rash I think I may have been. And for this last 20 minutes, I felt like um, on the way to the pulpit, and I'm thinking I really should have rewritten what I've just written down. But I'll go, I'll go with my, my, initial, uh, my initial thoughts. Now, I'm not sure in what capacity I am commenting here this evening as a law and compliance professional in the city for 25, 30 years, or as a cleric. And in fact, I did a quick change in my way um, before I came to St. Paul's this evening. However, did not Lloyd Blankfield find, of Goldman say that his firm was doing God's work? So where is God's work in the capital markets? And although I might not entirely agree with all his comments, I certainly do believe that one's faith's perspectives, whichever they are, are an integral part of the approach and a guide to any solution. And I often ask myself, where is God in all this? So for me, my faith informs my approach in business, and also, just as importantly, I believe, my experience in business enables me to have a greater reality in my focus on faith issues. So having read the excellent report, um, and with that caveat, it is a really excellent report, but it's so wide and comprehensive, I've taken the liberty of made a few comments on some aspects that, that, that struck a particular chord with me. Now, I would certainly agree that ensuring an efficiently uh, managed capital markets are an essential part of trying to ensure that resources are created uh, which are created by humanity's ingenuity, are effectively challenged, channeled and supported uh, to support other parts of the wider society. But I suppose one question and comment would be, in this global world, capital markets have no borders. So I think one of the challenges I see from this excellent report is although it's focused on the UK slash EU, mainly UK perspective, you know, with the growth and development of capital markets, particularly in China, which I've seen in myself, we're moving into a different rates and the solution can only be global. So regional solutions can only be partial. So in other words, as you said, it is an ongoing solution. I suppose that's one little caveat uh, at the start. And having said that, the observations are very valid for what they are. I agree, and I love the phrase about the hydra, the capital markets is indeed a hydra, a beast of many different heads. So the question for all of us and for the industry is, are they talking to each other? And if they are talking to each other in this global world, are they talking the same language? And within this free movement of capital, not only within the EU, but more importantly, globally, whose solution 
is the most sustainable and how to interpret and I've seen that you know personally in my role as global compliance director of interpreting that in different cultures and different linguistic contexts and I've seen that where you know generally speaking I'd say that the um, financial regulatory model is a Judeo-Christian one and then working in the Far East when one respects um, the Eastern, Eastern philosophies and of course in the Middle East as well there, there are some real challenges as to well, what's the right thing where and when and for whom then moving on to another important issue intergenerational absolutely important because virtually all the population would have some of their pension savings invested in the capital markets and speaking to my mother and others they don't realise that they've got money invested in the capital markets. But that also places an even greater responsibility of stewardship. And that's come up a few times, and I'll come back to that. Upon those who are charged with the investments and the management of those investments. You see, those of us who work or have worked in the markets, each and every one of us is as much a client as an investor or as a manager. So this, I would say, you know, reflecting as I've been asked to do from a personal basis, everything in the capital market is a very personal matter, and I think we, we can forget that sometimes in, in the great furore of the size. It's the money which we will need for nursing home fees, for ourselves and our children, and the practical financial stewardship nature of the whole scenario just cannot be underestimated. So I suppose... I, I, I question sometimes, and I, I entirely agree with the sustainability and the green investments, but those have got to come up with a return for, for my mum's nursing home fees and mine in due course. So I think you've got that, there's always going to be that tension there. Pension funds, we've mentioned from Hermes and others <coughs> that there's been a lot of focus on those being the main investors. And there was comment in the report, which I alighted I, I, I on, uh, that members of a defined benefit pension scheme have a personal interest in the long-term success of the companies in which the company invests. Now, I can relate to that, because at least two of my, my um, company pension schemes are defined benefits. And then I moved to Merrill Lynch. And in good old American fashion, we had a, an, a British version of a 401k plan, you know, a money purchase scheme. The approach is different, and I suppose my comment and caveat is, certainly in this country and further afield, there's a lot of movement away from defined benefit to money purchase. And in fact, if however many of you are working in the city at the moment, if you are starting to affirm, you will not get a defined benefit scheme. So I, I think that's, that's an angle there. Um, there's a description of the vision of being self-regulation is the best solution. Well, for those of us who worked in compliance and as a lawyer um, in the 1960s, and uh, 1980s, I'm not that old, in the 1980s, um, Financial Services Act 1986, I was there, that was the original plan. However, that didn't quite work and the regulations that had to be imposed were needed in order to curtail the excesses due to the complexity of the markets that were developing. And we're all aware, aren't we, in the square mile, that the regulators seem not to have stopped 
the recent failures. However, I feel that much of those problems are due to poor implementation by the regulators and not the regulations themselves or the regulatory system. You see, a good regulatory system should take into account of both the detail and the wider principles. And if you, those of you who are as nerdy as I am and look at FCA um, news releases, you'll, you'll know that many of the recent enforcement cases have been focused on breach of principles, not subsections and details. And in fact, if you were also listening to the acting head of the FCA, Tracy McDermott, in a, a speech at the Mansion House a little over a week ago, she said very clearly, the volume of regulatory activity is not sustainable, neither for the industry nor the regulator. So I would hope for a more intelligent and ethically-led regulatory system, rather than moving backwards, in my view and experience, to a self-regulatory regime. And I know from my own experiences, I had a few hours ago in, the, in, a, in another place, as they say, um, when a firm asks me, what specific rules and sections do I need to adhere to, to do X? I usually ask the quest, answer the question by saying, why are you asking the question? Because a tick box mentality is just the wrong approach and can never cover every scenario. So I would hope that the regulators, and certainly for what Tracy McDermott has said, are moving towards more of a value-based system in which the approach with dealing with the effects of that wonderful many-headed hydra uh, can be dealt with. And that is the but. It's difficult, it's complicated, and it needs to be global. And I know how difficult it can be to try and implement, try being the underlying word, implement a scorecard, as we used to call it, of approach to regulatory compliance. It's very difficult. Life ain't easy, as they say. And I always worry, in business, or indeed in faith matters, when there is an apparently easy panacea of moving to self-regulation. The life is complex, and that many-headed hydra, which is the capital markets, certainly needs a combination of measures. So, very briefly, as we look forward to a drink, I should end by saying how much I really was interested and appreciative of the ideas and perspectives from this paper. Absolutely vital that society gets the right balance for future generations. I mentioned stewardship earlier. So I suppose I should say and remind us that that stewardship that so many people talk about is a Judeo-Christian concept whereby Humanity is reminded that their health and their wealth is not <coughs> down to their own good fortune, but is provided, we believe, as a gift from God. So sometimes, perhaps the sheer weight of the numbers in the capital markets can blind us to that reality, that reality that is not ours to ultimately mess up on, and we have an obligation to get it right as far as we can for our society and for the others. Um, and the contribution to that debate is really valuable 
and I really thank Tomorrow's Capital for a very engaging and well-researched paper. I look forward to, as I was commenting earlier, the ripples on the pond will be expanding for some time to come. Thank you very much. Now, I let that go on a little longer, but I thought it was all well worthwhile. So now it's your turn. Um, I'd love to hear, or we'd love to hear, either questions or comments or different perspectives. We realize you have a summary, um, I believe, of, of, of what's been in the report. You've heard what some of us have had to say, but um, you haven't had benefit of reading the whole thing, most of you, yet. But please um, raise your hands if you have something you'd either like to ask or comment upon. And please stand up and say who you are when you do it. Yes, sir. Thank you. This is Lloyd Yassin from Global Vision 2000. I was going to attend an event at St. James tonight, St. James Church, uh, on housing. Uh, and I will just use that as a focal point. Uh, I, I mean, basically, I agree with the last speaker about stewardship and need to further. I think what's missing in finance is the notion, and I think it's very relevant to say it here, is a covenant, uh, not between stakeholders, investors, but a covenant with the creator. Whether you want to ridicule that or not, that's irrelevant. But I think we've got to go back to basics. There is a fundamental, indeed there was a book launched here about money and idolatry uh, a year or two ago. So I think, unless we address this fundamental premise of this actual building, to have a covenant, and what does that mean for society? Uh, and coming to housing, there's going to be a battle for a new mayor in the city that's already started. And I think both of the candidates, interestingly, from Judeo-Islamic perspectives, uh, are, are putting environment and housing, I think, on the agenda. And I would raise this simple issue. Why isn't this city, which no doubt is successful in certain, in certain areas, why can it, why can it not um, have a sustainable and to be brutally, to the point, affordable housing? Because all the evidence is, it is undermining the future viability of the city. Uh, there is a huge issue. Mind your money is going into bricks and mortars, but it's profit maximization. And it's for um, safe haven. I wonder if acting as a safe haven for the rich man of the world. I mean, you know, we've got to get down to brass pack and the realities. And that means a paradigm shift. So I, I, I put that to you. It's a, it's a very valid point. It may be another study, I think. There are, there are several think tanks working on it, though, and I think it's, it's an important point, both that and the mayor's debate. I don't know if anybody here wants to, to comment specifically, or we want to gather a few first. Well, very briefly, I was reminded of George Peabody. I mean, Peabody Trust is one of our members, and they're a fascinating organization, because at one extreme, they house tenants, and at the other extreme, they raise bonds in the city. And George Peabody, as I understand it, in the 19th century came to this country and used uh, his considerable wealth in a way which actually generated very much the result you're talking about. 
And it seems to me that uh, this is a fascinating example where we do need to mobilize the power of capital markets to meet a very real human need. But it, as you were saying, it needs to be in a regulatory context because you, if you just let the market operate, um, tenants won't be able to afford, uh, key workers won't be able to afford housing. Anyone else? Uh, back, I'm sorry, I, I have to sort of lean and point. It's very rude of me, but please tell people who you are. Tom Chalmersky, Sustensis. Uh, I'm just reading the title, Investing in What We Value. Why it hasn't happened so far? It's so obvious. And yet, we do not have, I would say, a ready answer. Or the answer that is in the report, which I haven't read out in the summary of that, doesn't, in my view, uh, offer any chance to force the market to move in that direction. So what could it be? In my view, there isn't, there isn't hopefully, an option. If you look at what the uh, what an average chief executive or a banker wants, he wants profit, profit, and more profit. So we have to give them the chance to make even more profit. But at the same time, almost as um, as a long side benefit, that profit will be made because the companies will become long-term. Now, how do you do that? I'm not sure that the recipe would be, in my view, as follows. Long-term uh, <clears throat> demands that the criteria that the business <coughs> is focused on are non-financial, non-financial. So if we, you know, I'm just cutting it short, if we can create an index that is based purely on non-financial criteria and run it like FTSE and then prove through much uh, higher correlation level than any CSR ESG does it today. And I'm talking by the way about the index that spans the entire uh, company spectrum from the strategy itself, not just ESG. So then we would, we would show the, the, the chief executive that this is possible. You can invest for the long term and yet make even higher benefits on average than you do right now. Thank you. Pat, I wonder if you might want to respond a little on some of the KPIs we were looking at, the key performance indicators, because, I mean, one of the things I was thinking about as I went back and read it is one of the problems with this long-term view is nobody has much long-term visibility right now, and nobody has much sense that the government will continue to behave in a, in a continuous and stable way on their policy, that regulators will continue to behave in a, a stable way. That's part of the reason. But we were also looking, if my memory serves, at some of the key performance indicators we might be talking about. Do you want to say a word? Yeah. Uh, we all have a tendency to, if someone says how can we measure our performance or success, we tend to use whatever metrics we currently understand or are using. And therefore, actually, has a shortening effect in terms of horizons. When we were doing the KPIs, we were actually putting up a set that actually we probably don't know how to measure yet. And actually, that shouldn't stop us on the journey of trying to actually force a different perspective in terms of performance and use proxies. You know, it's sort of it's 500 years or whatever it's taking to get to the financial measurement system. Um, certainly it should stop us in terms of kind of pushing forward. And I think that's that kind of breaking out of that trap, isn't it? Mm. So when CEOs think about, I want to be here for the long term, you know, push the boundaries a bit in terms of the kind of things you want to measure. And just because 
the measures aren't there now, use some process to at least again give them a journey. Thanks. Other hands? Andrew. Sorry, that was a name I knew. He got an advantage. <laughs> this is maybe more of a comment for the poison uh, event, but I wanted to extend, and of course, just to read the report, obviously, um, to what extent it's trying to fill a void uh, in a narrowing political, in a period of narrowing political choice. So, you know, if you think about FDR, significantly regulated capital markets, the national government decided to capital markets in terms of the economy. But for the last 30 years, it's pretty hard to see in a lot of elections in the West different policy outcomes on these issues from the elections. But for 200 years before the 1980s, regions like this in Britain and North America really thinking about legislation. What do we legislate to solve the problem? But there seems to be a sort of general feeling that that's impossible today. But it's But isn't the issue, uh, as, as, as I think Hugh was, was saying, that, that, that we have no global government? And how do you, what legislation we bring forward here um, that simply makes it easier for business to be moved elsewhere without changing the behaviours? Which is why, in Divorce Company, we very firmly believe in that, that, that there is such a thing as a combination of commercial companies of government and civil society, governments and civil society working together. And there are many good examples of frameworks that have been formed, Forestry Stewardship Council being one, but there are lots and there are some in, in finance as well, where actually you have collaboration by civil society almost filling that, that vacuum. And maybe that's the equivalent to what you were talking about. I was just going to come, yes, I, I agree. Um, I suppose the, um, the issue that struck me is you've got the, um, the nudge. You know, the, the, in number 10, there's a, there's a nudge unit, isn't it? Yes. Uh, and effectively, you know, there is a global organisation, IOSCO, but it's not really, hasn't got that power globally to do it. So the, I really see a bit like the, the pebbles in, in the pond. Um, this being a global nudge process, which we've start, you've started here, and that's the only way you're going to do it. I mean, it's, we, the gone, is, gone is the age of the nation state, certainly in the couple, couple of markets. Don't tell them in Westminster that. Yes, sir. <laughs> uh, John Paul from Share Action, we both of those who are charity campaigns, the responsible investment across the number of fronts, including connecting individuals up to their savings and the even uh, reference on this planet. Uh, <laughs> direct questions about uh, you mentioned the capital markets union proposals from the European Commission. What do you say the things that need to be in there to make this kind of stuff and that's the to make a reality? Could we ask Ingrid Holmes to answer that question? And ask you to stand up and turn around so people can hear you. We have been working with the European Commission to make it possible this uh, longest term management creation, particularly around um, dealing with climate risk and wider related environmental social governance issues in the PW's country is a brilliant example of all three of those in one package. So I think the challenge for the European Commission is to understand exactly how in this broad spectrum of interventions we can take the process forward. Um, particularly given a lot of it is about culture change and not everything can be regulated. But I think a good place to start is um, more disclosure 
on some of these ESG issues. And just listening to Leon, actually, I think um, uh, some kind of move towards uh, management standards, like statements on uh, stewardship approaches, maybe another intervention. But a lot of it is actually going to be about bringing expert stakeholders together on the back of things like Bank of England um, review and the uh, governance speech. We'll have more um, coming through from the Financial Stability Board in the G20 next month, but actually starting to link those processes and saying we need to work together as a group of societal representatives and investors to figure out exactly what those solutions are. And that's the very much the nature of the conversation with the Commission and actually also with the I'm going to take the chair's prerogative and ask a follow-up, if I may, uh, which is there was a meeting that my colleague was at today that was talking about investment um, in a sustainable way. And there was a feeling that we're almost getting to a tipping point on some of these things, to use Malcolm Gladwell's term, that, that there's now enough momentum behind some of these efforts that it's making a difference. You know, if Governor Carney stands up and speaks about climate change, it gets noticed. Um, for good and for ill, I guess, depending on who you, whose chair you're sitting in there. Is this, is this the kind of thing where we can also expect there to be a sort of tipping point where you start to see enough people talking about it and enough people caring about it that encouraging people to do that and become more vocal is something that will help? Uh, definitely, and the, the key moment again will be in December in Paris, and there will be a before and after Paris moment, and investors will need to take a view on what this means. What we know is the opportunities for low carbon investment are expanding as different geographies take more action. Um, uh, not everyone is moving at the same speed, and so it, there will be a need now to start to climate proof uh, portfolios, but actually. If you saw the announcements from the um, Environment Agency Pension Scheme, what they said, their chief investment officer said was pulling money out of coal stocks was the easy thing. The hard thing is to find clean and sustainable investment opportunity. And that's why this kind of report is really important because a lot of what we need to do is to change the hearts and minds of government, governments in terms of how they prescribe our infrastructure choices of the future. Um, so more vocal investors are going to be really important. Um, but you know, increased corporate engagement and stewardship uh, by companies will be part of this too. It's also about supply chains. So I think we will start to see more momentum, um, uh, definitely, post-Paris. Good. Yes, sir. Andrew McGowan, uh, well, I mentioned, uh, touched on uh, perverse incentives inside the industry that was starting to introduction. Uh, but uh, from our perspective, there are many perverse incentives from the outside of the industry as well. Uh, one of the real downfall is that there's the incentives to create and use debt based contracts rather than more simplistic or stabilizing and, and, and more burden sharing equity type. To what extent does the report look at those incentives come from monetary policy and central banking, they come from taxation, they come from certain regulatory environments as well? To what extent have you looked at those more exogenous incentives that affect the way capital markets actually function before? Um, could I steer that question towards Donald? Because I think your thought piece was, in a sense, 
dealing with some of that in the in certain because you've talked in, in your thought piece about the incentivization of, of more debt-based approaches by, by corporate pension funds, which is something that I think we, we would like to see reversed. Um, yes, uh, I suppose the, um, the, the fact is that, that investment, the word investment itself has historically connoted equity investment. Um, we all know the, the, um, the financial incentives that there are on um, on companies to raise money through debt, um, and there is the, uh, the the narrow, if you like, the orthodoxy, the business school orthodoxy of cost of capital and, and <coughs> companies and investors all buying into the same view. It's a very narrow view again um, around um, uh, the uh, the way in which a company should be financed. Um, so there is, I think, an opportunity uh, for this to be widened. And taking Barbara's point about, I think, about the, you know, um, even the Economist raises certain points. When you have the Economist, I think it was months or a year ago, talking about the, the balance between debt and equity financing. It came out against the tax deductibility of interest for yeah. corporates. Uh, and that again is going up the. Um, I suppose the political agenda goes up and down in, in the US. <coughs> um, possibly there's room for it to go up the agenda in the UK. I don't think it's been very visible. We, I don't think the report really focuses very much on that. And, and that might be a, uh, something to explore in the future. Yes. Martin Rich from the Future Foundation. Um, and for those of us who don't know, we're creating great APIs that Pat was referring to. The underlying concern with a lot of the, the conversations I hear around this space is an underlying belief within society that actually this is still a choice. Mark's opening comments made it very, very clear that we will surely need two or three planets. And unless I've missed something, we don't have two or three planets. <laughs> so the concept that the investment world thinks that, well, you know, maybe we can invest, maybe we can't, on the terms, is nonsense. The concept that business can carry on as usual, and maybe we should give a choice to consumers, between sustainable and non-sustainable products is nonsense. In this wonderful place of worship, it get one of the comments the gentleman behind me. Um, at the start of the Bible, God told mankind to go and steward the planet. Again, I don't believe that it was included if it makes sense for shareholder value. <laughs> It's right up there with the GMO seeds, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, certainly not a good news version. Um, again, choice wasn't given there. Yet, in a modern world of where everything is relative, um, probably already going you know, to be accused of being a bigot or um, uh, uh, unreasonable by several people even in this room, how, how to the panel, how do we persuade people that this is not just some agenda that we've come up with, but actually this is what everybody's common 
good. How do we get that message across in a way that will mobilise people to action? Who would like to take a stab at that? We should all go and live in China, and in China they'll decide exactly what's right in terms of building infrastructure, dealing with carbon. It's much easier in a command economy to make some of those the, the changes which, which we're making. Um, so if we move to, to some of the, the more Western economies, then the only way we could... I think government does need to intervene a bit more in, 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 in the way we, we, we manage ourselves. Um, all right, to give you... And this is off completely... Not off the record, but off... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the gentleman... Uh, off, off piece. <laughs> the gentleman uh, behind you talked about housing. The reason we've got a really major, difficult problem housing in a number of different economies around the world is because housing has become unaffordable. Why has housing become unaffordable? Well, the ironic reason why housing has become unaffordable, it was just very easy to get a mortgage. Because it was very easy to get a mortgage that led to a lot of housing inflation. Um, and now housing is, um, and the debt which is linked to housing is 70% of the money supply in the UK and similar, similarly in the US. And all that money supply is created by private banks, not by the, the central bank. Um, so one thing which different economies could do is give central banks the right um, to, to create money and, and set that at a level which makes um, some of the goods and services are more, more affordable. And I know that's sounding a little bit like Corbynomics, um, <laughs> but I, I read two or three books on this subject before I knew who Jeremy Corbyn was. So, so there, there, may, there may be something as, as radical as that which could be done. So a big quantitative easing? Um, I wouldn't call it quanti quantitative easing. It's, it's about... Just making up money. Well, ultimately, what we, what we consume are the goods and services which we produce. The reason why there was a significant crash um, six or seven years ago is the money which we had um, created to mirror what we were consuming um, suddenly wasn't worth anything and so create, created a, a, a suction in, 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 in the economy. Which led, which, and that's why we needed all that quantitative easing. Um, there's, a, there's another um, think tank out there called Positive Money that some of you may know of that wants to get rid of fractional reserve banking altogether. Um, but it's, not, it's not fractional reserve banking at the moment. No, but the, right. but the point is how do you get from here to there? I think one of the issues is, is even if you were to try and put in this kind of transition, right now it would come at an enormous pain to an awful lot of people if you tried to stop the process that is so well underway. But if you believe, if you believe that this is just one aspect of tomorrow's capital markets, and sorry to take it off piece, but it was asked. <laughs> if, 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 if you believe the positive money story, then there is a transition which you can take mm. to, to, to take away the responsibility of you creating money in the economy from the private banks mm. to, make, to make it more central, mm. which until three or four years ago was the way, and I'm, I used to be an economist, mm. was the way I believed it happened. Mm. Um, that's, uh, so, so we might be able to switch that. That might bring some stability, for example, to the housing market and make it, make it potentially more, more affordable. Uh, 
Just on the other aspect, I, that's definitely an area I, I don't feel qualified to trade in, not being an economist, but the area of choice, Martin, you would, I, I think that my attitude is we, we need to use every possible instrument. As Leon said, we are in, uh, we are in a, a, if not a total democracy, a, a, a non-command economy. And in a non-command economy, what is wrong with saying, we know, we just know that out there people are, they feel angry and let down by what companies seem to stand for now. They feel angry and let down that companies don't, companies seem to treat people as disposable objects. They're angry and they feel let down, that they feel companies try to cheat customers sometimes when they're not caught. Now that's not the total, total picture. I do believe many companies are forced for good, but the, those are the attitudes that are out there. Now, it doesn't seem to me impossible that through this stewardship agenda that we in Tomorrow's Company and others like Hermes are, are working on, we could actually get through to people. There's a connection between your savings and how companies behave. And that we could actually persuade the intermediaries in the system to start saying, well, let's offer some, let's offer some stewardship funds. Let's offer the kind of funds where people will know that, that fund holds the management's feet to the fire when they try and pay themselves too much. Or, it seems to me that using the consumer economy as one of many instruments to try and achieve the change is desirable, although I accept, like you, we don't have a choice. But, but in a way, we also don't have a choice about the fact we live in a non-command economy. <laughs> I'm going to use that opportunity to begin to wrap up so that you get your drinks as we promised, when we promised. And I'm going to ask um, each of the panelists to make a comment. I again, I'm a horrible person, I'm going to take the prerogative to do it first, because I think one of our issues here, and I was listening, Leon, and I understood what you were saying, because I worked in the capital markets mm. all my life, and I think many of the people in this audience will have, because they also do, but I think we tend to speak a language when we talk about these things, that 95%, if not 99% of the population don't understand at all, and whose eyes glaze over. And so I think we also have a responsibility, as my concluding point, to put these discussions in a framework and a context that is meaningful and to demystify a lot of the jargon that exists in the market that makes it so impenetrable for Hugh's mother to understand where her money is that pays for her nursing home. And, you know, I think that is incumbent on all of us that work to demystify this in a way that people who do vote in a democracy want to have a say and can have a say, and they don't just find that their eyes glaze over when we start to talk about it because it is such a foreign language to them. So that's my concluding point. Hugh, can I ask you to go next? Yes. <laughs> um, well, what comes across to me, I suppose, in lots of different ways, and it's been said a few times, um, is stewardship. You know, I, I go back to the point I made at the end, um, which is really we we risk not we risk forgetting when we see all the noughts of, uh, attracting the markets that this is. Um, not our own money, this is not something for this generation, it's for the generations to come. And actually to personalise it, I think for, unless you actually work in the markets, and I have, um, and I've had struggle, struggle explaining to, to certainly my mother um, and others, um, but I think we really should try and 
um, be good salespeople for this concept, not only in the political agenda, but, it, but in, 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 in the general press and media. Um, it's too, I often say these things, um, it's too important to be left to the specialists. Thank you. So I would agree on the stewardship front. I think stewardship, but not only from investment managers and owners, but across the, across the investment chain, to be focused as much as possible on what we're trying to achieve ultimately for, for the beneficiary. I think, um, and what I, one thing I like about the report is it's made up of 30 to 40 recommendations or provocations. There's not one or two, there's not just uh, changing the way the money supply is created as the answer. Um, there's a number of different ways because, because as, as Mark said, there's, this is a complex area and, they are, and, and human behavior is going to be human behavior and everyone in that investment chain has their own, has their own incentives. And so we not, need lots of little initiatives um, of ways of trying to, to, to fix, fix that. And then I think there's also got to be something about making people accountable and, and, and making their actions transparent. Because the more that happens, the better behavior I think will, will, will encourage. I'm not talking about a blame game, but just accountability and transparency of, of one's actions. And Mark, final comment for you. Thank you. Well, I'd like to sum it all up in empowering the client of this whole complicated system. And I'd like to give two illustrations, um, one of which represents my commitment, going back to your very opening challenge. Um, but first, I, I mean, I've got this over-simple dream that one day it would be as easy to walk into the financial services supermarket and pick off the shelf a product that represents my brand of stewardship as it is today to walk into a, a, a supermarket and pick off a brand of coffee or tea that represents my brand, my taste, but also I know is, is fair trade. That's my dream, that we could make it simple in retail terms for consumers to express a choice about stewardship. My commitment is, I, I, I had a phone call today from my daughter. Um, and uh, but my, my mother died earlier this year, and, and as a result of that, my, my, my daughter's come into a bit of money for the first time in her life. And, and she was saying to me, well, Dad, you know, I don't know what to do. <laughs> and my commitment is, I think, um, one of the things that came out to me from Thomas Capital Markets is for the, almost the first time in my life, I found out there were investment funds out there that I could put some of my discretionary savings for pensions into and feel good about it and feel I was doing something for the planet. And I've started to do that. And I want to be able to help my daughter do that with her discretionary funds. And I just think that each of us, we have more choices than we've admitted to ourselves. And let's just try to use those choices. Glad to have a nice optimistic note to end that on. And what I would encourage you to do, after we have obviously thanked the panelists, um, is to go out and talk to each other about what concrete steps you will take to make a difference over a glass of wine. Now, please can I ask you to thank all the panelists and all the people at Tomorrow's Company that have helped with this report. Thank you.